Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. And welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Did you miss us? <laughs> welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Oh, you guys. We were on vacation and <laughs> thinking about you. We were. There was Comic Con and Hawaii and Azerbaijan. Yeah, I saw a mountain on fire. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, so did I, but it was on two completely no, different no, no. parts You're of the planet. No, 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 you're talking about a volcano. I saw a mountain on fire. Yeah, you can't light a mountain on fire. What the hell are you talking about? That's not what the shepherd in Azerbaijan said. <laughs> he said there was a small patch of lawn or something on a mountain that was on fire. Mountain's still on fire, it counts. Yenar dog, hashtag. <laughs> mountain on fire, hashtag. All right. Okay. Yeah. So welcome back, guys. Season, uh, season six. six. Wow. Look how long we've been going. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Thanks so much for sticking with us, guys. And, you know, making it kind of a pleasure to see all your smiling subscriptions so in our this inbox. this season, we're going to be in the same format as most of the others. But I was trying to figure out where where to start. And for those of you who have been following politics from, from either end, you know that one of the biggest things that keeps coming up is some form of universal health care. Yeah. And for those of you guys outside of the United States, this is a form of health care that you guys probably had I, 20, 30 years ago. You know, most of you guys probably around the world, Europe, Canada, have already kind of figured this out, but we're still figuring it out in the United States. Santosh, yeah. are you aware 
that we actually have universal health coverage for just a single organ in the body. Uh, a, a single organ in the body? One organ in the body is special enough that it gets universal health coverage. Uh, it's not the brain. Um, that, <laughs> I mean, is is it the heart? Because, I mean, if, if a person uh, gets seen for chest pain, for instance, in you the United States... You can't turn them States, away, but you nobody don't have to cover them, them away. as insurance companies are so happy to deny. But no, uh, the one organ that gets universal health coverage is the oh, kidney, boy. and that's under the auspices of dialysis. Oh, oh, you're kidding me. So you, uh, whatever healthcare, you know, kind of coverage or everything you have, if you need dialysis, you're going to get dialysis? That's what I thought would be an excellent jumping off point. What does universal health coverage actually look like? And how did we get there? And that's why this episode is going to be dedicated a little bit to nephrology, but mostly to talking about peritoneal and hemolysis. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, this is a really cool topic. Um, when I was doing my residency training, um, it was a big center for peritoneal dialysis, which is the primary modality that we use in kids. Um, I know you're an internist, and usually adults will get hemodialysis. Um, and yeah, this is one of the things that we can't live without. We need our kidneys to filter out the byproducts of metabolism and excess water and, you know, send it down the river. But it's one of the few systems that we have conceived and designed and engineered a fairly good solution for when our own native kidneys stop working. So as always, we're going to go back. Let's get hop into the way back machine. <laughs> and talk a little bit about how we got here. So it begins, our story begins in 1694 when a chunky square book was published in the Netherlands by Frederick Deckers. And in it, he was first talking about, he was writing a medical textbook about what he calls the water of consumptives. Now, if you recall, consumption was the old-timey name for tuberculosis because it consumed you from the inside. And don't yeah. worry, dear listeners, there is a whole episode dedicated to Victorian medicine I'm going to spring on my co-hosts later this year. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is... Uh, you know, I think, Josh, we may have done Egyptian medicine at some point because that's your other great love. Oh, we'll get to them too. Don't but, you worry. Uh, but Victorian medicine and all the crazy stuff that happened in Victorian, especially in Victorian England, when medicine was up and coming, I think is one of your absolute favorites. It is. It is. I love it. But, so yeah. Oh, I'll I'll give I'll give the listeners a taste that blowing smoke up your ass was actually a real thing in the Victorian era, and it was used to see if you could bring someone back from drowning. Bet you're a lot more thankful for CPR now, aren't you? <laughs> so, right. so that's just a taste. The water of consumptives, when placed on the fire, soon became milky, really smelled like milk, and had the taste of sweet milk. This is interpreted to be the first description. <laughs> the taste! <laughs> I'm also thankful for CT scans and dipsticks. 
Uh, all right, go ahead. <laughs> so this has basically been interpreted as the very first written description of albuminuria, which is protein, one of the major carrier proteins in our body, ending up in the urine. And what a ton of kidney diseases end up doing is ending up spilling protein. And one of the earliest descriptions of the nephrotic syndrome in what we'll call the modern era actually was in a pediatric textbook from the 1700s, Santosh. Even though most nephrologists have completely ignored it, this is what this 1700s physician said about it. And he was talking about edema, generally called hydrops, is a condition Mm -hmm. that involves swelling of the whole body. From head to foot, the skin's a pale, dirty yellow and characterized by inflation of the whole periphery. The swelling is not hard or tense, but such that the print of a finger remains behind. Thirst is great. The bowel action is not as free as usual, and the urine is scanty because of obstruction and compression of the kidney. Breathing can become difficult, accompanied by anxiety, and there can be a strong desire to sleep because the brain is overfull with serum. Sleep is poor because of disturbance of the vital spirit, and there may be a dry cough from each of nerves to the lung by this liquid, salty lymph. For 1700, that's a pretty spot-on description of fluid overload. Yeah, uh, you know, right now we didn't have a full understanding of the pathophysiology of how this fluid overload occurred, but we've gone through a lot of phases by this point where we have anatomy of blood vessels we we know about the circulation of the blood and the lymphatics have been dissected out as they talked about so they can understand where if we are a uh, hydrostatic system you know we're just a this body is like just plumbing right they're understanding where the back pressure is kind of applying um, both from within the vessels outward, um, because the osmotic pressure, which is the pressure that keeps your fluid inside of your blood vessels rather than leaking out into your tissues, that's absent. They haven't figured that out yet, but you know they, they can see the symptoms. They can see the results of it. And then they see that when that fluid accumulates, you get back pressure every year. You get back pressure on the blood vessels. You get back pressure on the kidneys because the ureters are being squeezed. You get back pressure on the bowel because the bowel is being squeezed by too much liquid into the tissues or fluid in the tissues. So we, us compartmentalized water bags, when the compartments break down, that same amount of water that makes us up just starts squeezing and causing pressure where it shouldn't. And this is why we can't breathe, we can't poop, we can't pee very well. And eventually this is going to lead to death in kind of a a myriad number of ways. I'm not surprised that it first showed up in pediatrics because nephrotic syndrome as a whole is more prevalent in pediatrics than it is in adults. For those who are wondering what we're talking about, we will in just a bit, is where you're spilling too much protein from your blood into your kidneys and into your urine for various different kinds of reasons. And the most common protein to find in nephrotic syndrome is once again albumin, which is the major carrier protein in our blood. It's like the little taxi driver that escorts a whole bunch of other important things around from place to place. Yeah, it's a catch-all, hey, I can move anything from point A to point B kind of protein. Yeah, the, the UPS of the arterial system. 
Or I guess the, the Amazon now? <laughs> I like it. Uh, yeah, because now they've got their own drones. We can get into that later. Onwards to Scotland, and Scottish chemist Thomas Graham first coined the term and described dialysis in 1854. He noted originally that crystalloids, or a certain type of fluid, were able to diffuse through vegetable parchment that had been coated with proteins that acted as a semi-permeable membrane. So what was this experiment? Well, my supermarket scienteers, he prepared a bell-shaped vessel filled with urine. I'm not going to ask where he got it. And he capped the open end of the bell filled with urine. He capped it with an ox bladder and then suspended it in a large container filled with distilled water. After several hours, he took the bell out of the water and then heated the container so the fluid inside was boiled off. And he showed that the residue in the large distilled water container consisted mainly of salt and urea, the principal components of urine which proved that it had passed through the membrane between the bell and the bucket. This was so cool. Um, you know, we had known about osmosis for a while. You can move water from one place to the other, um, you know, using um, a membrane that would allow water to, to pass by while holding other solutes in place. Um, but this was really a wonderful modern discovery where you said, oh, I don't want to transport the water. I actually want to transport the solutes. Um, so in this case, urea, sodium chloride. Um, you do lose a few other minerals like potassium, for instance. But this was one of the first demonstrations in the modern era of a semi-permeable membrane network. Now, around the same time this was going on, and also at Glasgow University in Scotland, there was a physician whose name was Richard Bright. And he was busy describing what renal failure looked like. In 87, so a little bit before Graham's report, uh, Bright had collected several medical cases to feature that showed the features and consequences of kidney disease, which he listed as an association with dropsy. Now, dropsy was the old-timey medical word for edema, and not because you would constantly yeah. drop from trying to waddle around on swollen limbs, but because... It was a <laughs> slang version of hydrops. Hydrops in general means swelling everywhere. It's technically in modern uh, verbiage, you have to have uh, accumulation of fluid in more than two body compartments, like the pleura or the peritoneum. And so you took hydrops, and we even have, have a, one for pediatrics in little babies called hydrops fetalis. And then you just cut off the high part and yeah, it's say dropsy. Dropsy. So, so right described <laughs> cases yeah. of patients who had dropsy, proteinuria, and just in general features of this nephrotic syndrome. And this became known as Bright's disease. And for about 100 years, all kidney disease was called Bright's disease. Later on, it became known to describe <laughs> diseases only of the glomerulus. Uh, which is like the function, like the nephron, the functional component of the kidney. Yeah, so you can imagine, um, you know, if you were to cut open the kidney, which is, I know, kind of a gross thing, you have blood vessels going through there, so arterial flow into the kidney, and the arteries go down, down, down until they're just a capillary thick, 
And then those capillaries wind around until they look like um, a, a ball of yarn. And surrounding that ball of yarn is a little membrane, one cell thick, which allows for the flow of all the stuff you don't want, like urea and salts, excess salts, and a little bit of water. That bundle of blood vessels surrounded by that membrane is called the nephron, the functional unit of initial filtration of the blood into the kidney or into the urine is the nephron, so thus nephrotic syndrome. And Josh, it was really weird because it took us a while from here to learn that there's all kinds of different causes of why the kidneys can shut down. And not all of those causes of the kidney shutting down results in proteinuria or in nephrotic syndrome. How yeah. rare is your disease? So <laughs> rare you get to name it. Yeah. So many. Although, so to many. be fair, a lot of people were dying from kidney disease. So fun fact, this chemist Graham and Dr. Bright looked at Graham's Bell experiment on dialysis, and they actually predicted that these experiments would form the basis of a treatment for kidney failure. And they said it would take about 60 years to develop the process sufficiently to be used in patients. That means he did the experiments around 1854, and they predicted dialysis would be up and running and a thing available to people, which would be about 1910. They were off, but not nearly by as much as you would think. No, th these were some smart people. And the thing I love about this is that they were starting from first principles, right? They weren't making wild guesses about, you know, how this process would work or you know, how this thing would develop. They were just saying, look, we're able to show you that we can remove urea and salt from urine and we can do it on a small scale. We're just saying that we need the materials and the, the experiments and stuff to apply this to humans. So I don't know how this is going to pan out, but if you allow for this much time, it'll pan out. Well, these guys were no slouches because Graham realized that in order to successfully treat renal failure, toxins that accumulate in the kidney would have to be removed. And in order to remove them, you'd have to understand their production rate and the rate at which they can cross a membrane. So he started making a bunch of experiments that would measure rates of transfer across different membranes for different solutes or salts. Oh, cool. So he'd say, okay, urea can travel at this rate, this. And the whole science of dialysis adequacy is based on a similar understanding of renal failure and uh, uremic toxicity. And in 1884, the British physiologist John Barry Haycraft first derived hirudin from leeches, which I'm only mentioning because we are going to talk about hemodialysis, and none of that <laughs> would have been possible without hirudin. Oh, I absolutely love it. Now, hirudo, you know, which is the genus name for most of the leeches that we use, actually derives from the uh, the old Greek for physician, you know, because leeches were quote unquote the first healers. Bloodletting so, for the win. <laughs> so they were using some pretty you know ancient principles to say that oh you know we need this stuff. Hirudin uh, is the the component of the leech's saliva that stops the blood from clotting so that the, the leech is able to suck and uh, take in as much blood as it wants to without a clot being formed at so the bite. So as a result of these discoveries and this description and the invention also around this time of the urine dipstick, 
doctors everywhere began enthusiastically testing urine for protein, and it was one of the first available modern diagnostic tests, usually assuming very grave implications for the patient. And when I say assuming grave implications, (laughs) a lot of people who found who were found to have protein in their urine were dying to the extent that insurance companies were getting in on the fun. Uh, at the very first meeting of the Assurance Medical Society in 1894, the major topics on their docket was the importance of measuring albuminuria and assessing insurance risk. That was like one of the keynote speakers, you guys. <laughs> yeah, and, and I kind of get disgusted when I hear some of this stuff because what they're doing is actuarial science. Um, they're, they're taking a human being and saying, if I find this proteinuria, that means that this person has a very short amount of time to live. So I'm making a call or a prediction of how much longer their lifespan is Um, how much premiums I'll get out of them if they're paying into insurance and how much I'll have to pay out to help take care of them given where their health is going to go as predicted by their degree of proteinuria. Well, actually, I I have my own opinions on this. I'll leave it out for now. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Josh. Exactly right. But yeah, it, it, it was a way for them to do risk assessment of how a patient would do and given to kind of a jump ahead, clinical or in this case a laboratory what, finding. 20 years later in 1912, they looked at these studies and found increased mortality in about 400 men who had been found to have proteinuria but otherwise normal health 10 years previously. And they cited additional company data that they had gathered from large numbers of patients that suggested mortality could more than double in individuals who were found to have a small amount of albumin in the urine and urinary casts. So the kidney and insurance companies and healthcare rationing have unfortunately been linked ever since the invention of the modern era, even if not always to the same degree that they are now. It's important to remember not everybody perished. Uh, There were several Scottish doctors who observed patients with proteinuria who recovered just fine. And also at the same time, hematuria was linked with nephritis around this period. And the nephron was only described in 1840, although we had known it existed since the 1600s. So, you know, the technology was kind of advancing in leaps and bounds in this period, which is part of what makes the Victorian era so fascinating. You have, on the one hand, brand new principles of science and technology being discovered, and on the other, oh, you have a cough? Like, why don't you go see some ghosts and drink morphine about it? (laughs) Yeah, it was was a lot of clash of old world thinking, uh, new world advancements, and then trying to figure out how those two, you know, traditional thinking and new discoveries kind of fit together properly to show us something brand new. And the cool thing is, whenever discoveries happen, this initial period of discovery on a given topic or on a subject, I don't care if it's mathematics or biology, there's a rush of knowledge because it's the coolest thing and it's most fascinating. Not only is there a lot to learn, but we tend to dedicate our time and effort to this new, fascinating, cool stuff. I'm actually really glad for one thing that came out of this actuarial stuff is that this fed into our knowledge of how to predict mortality for our patients 
from a medical standpoint. So this taught us, you know, nowadays, for instance, when we see someone who's in septic shock, you know, we can say, oh, you know, I have a, a set of factors here and I know that I have to attack these particular problems that we need the materials and their chances if their kidneys go into failure or if their liver goes into failure, their chances of mortality go higher and higher by a very particular percent. Yeah. So, and who says you can't put a price on humans? Actuaries <laughs> do it every day. They they really do. We try as physicians not to put a price, but rather to actually predict what we can do and what our chances are of being successful in treating somebody. Well, actuary. <laughs> you got one more chance to make that pun before I reach through this goddamn microphone. <laughs> I'm going to hold on to it. So <laughs> let's start talking about the different kinds of dialysis. Santosh, you were so kind as to offer me a foolish opening to Egypt. And the term, the term <laughs> peritoneum actually derives from yeah. the Greek peritoneion, which just means to stretch around. So the very first recorded oh. reference to a peritoneal cavity is in the Ebers papyrus, that famous Egyptian papyrus, Ooh. and they recognized that a sac surrounded all the internal abdominal organs. Why did they recognize this? Well, they were busy making mummies. When they were arranging and processing the internal organs to prevent rot, right? Because that's what would um, stave off the preservation of the mummy, is if you had the bowels rotting and uh, destroying a body from the inside out. Uh, because of the bacteria in there, you had to know how to process it and where all the parts were in order to make sure that you had a nice preserved body. So um, I, I think it's really cool because you can go all the way back to Egypt and say, oh, you know, they found the omentum and described it for the first time. And then just recently, Josh, I think you remember the omentum because of everything that it does, not just kind of hold the organs in place, but the connective tissue is important for enervation and uh, uh, perfusion with good, healthy blood. And, uh, you know, also, you know, the coordination of peristalsis to some degree, and it has an immune function. The omentum was given its designation it was, as a separate organ in the body. With peritoneum. I am a little bit. I, I know that they're separate organs in terms of where they lie. Jumping ahead from Egypt to Russell Crowe times, Galen observed the peritoneum in the open abdomen yeah. of injured gladiators. You know, so he was hanging out watching gladiatorial fights and goes, huh, you know what? When you cut into somebody's belly, stuff spills out. Ergo, ergo, there's a cavity for it all to sit in. Like a nice little bowl where all your organs kind of jiggle right. around. The omentum is what sort of holds them okay. in place. But the peritoneum is that actual cavity that they're all sitting in. That's what your belly is. Not your stomach. Your stomach is in your belly. Your belly gotcha. is your peritoneum. Yeah. The very first therapeutic infusion of <laughs> fluid into the peritoneal cavity. So the earliest, earliest attempt at what we're going to talk about in terms of peritoneal dialysis is infusing a solution into that empty cavity belly for the organs to marinate in was performed by Christopher Warwick in 1744 <laughs> and involved, and you're going to love this, the infusion of red wine for the treatment of ascites. 
Red, red Infuse wine. into me. Ah, oh, I love it. Straight <laughs> to my belly. <laughs> it's for my kidneys. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing. Okay, so I I don't know quite how this works. I know that alcohol can be absorbed by the omentum, and then it'll get into your bloodstream, so you'll get drunk. Um, but I don't know necessarily how it would stop you from getting more swollen. Well, you're not entirely wrong that they who was subjected to this treatment got hammered. Warwick was treating a 50-year-old woman who was <laughs> suffering from severe ascites, and he he decided to instill a solution of Bristol water and red, red wine okay. into her peritoneum through a leather pipe. The assumption being that wine would have an antibacterial effect. So he was sort of treating a belly infection and the patient became drunk oh. and reacted so violently, uh, not okay. just swinging at him, but like becoming violently ill that the therapy was discontinued after only three treatments. But it is interesting to note she did recover from the ascites in a period of weeks and was then able to walk seven miles a day without difficulty. <laughs> so it is, it, it's actually, it is possible then there was an intra-abdominal infection and that the alcohol just zapped the bacteria. But I'm not surprised that she had a bad reaction to this. Because basically, it's like mainlining wine. You know, you're just 12% alcohol straight into your bloodstream. Boom. Like, you think, you think the people who are butt-chugging are more committed to alcohol than, than health? <laughs> <laughs> I just well, you signed up for the wrong show. one episode without fluids going into orifices. So, I mean, and again, this was as this sounds. <laughs> All right, these were some landmark uh, advancements. The idea that you could infuse a liquid into the body to have a specific effect that you could alter fluid balance by changing membranes and solutes. These are all, as you said, theories from principles. Um, and by 1920, we had recognized that regardless of what you infused, whether it was wine or some other kind of fluid, that fluid would be completely absorbed within 20 hours of infusion, which led to the recognition that you could give intraperitoneal fluid to infants who were severely dehydrated when the oral yeah. route wasn't possible. So if they're dehydrated, you just go ahead and pump some fluid straight into the belly button. I mean, not that specific place, but <laughs> yeah. And I, I think I, I love what you're saying. I'm actually right with you on that. We use that from time to time now. Very rarely, of course. Nowadays, we have intravenous cannulae, so you can actually put fluids into the bloodstream directly. But yeah, this discovery was monumental. That you would have a fluid that could go into the peritoneum. It's not technically in the bloodstream. It's in the body, but it's in a cavity. But if the body, uh, sorry, if the concentration of water, well, it's, I know that's a bad way of saying it, but if, if the fluid in the blood vessels is more concentrated than the fluid outside, you know, the blood vessels, which is in the 
peritoneum, then by osmosis, uh, you get movement of that fluid. Um, or in the case of the red, red wine, you know, diffusion, you get alcohol <laughs> because the concentration of alcohol in the bloodstream should be zero. I mean, someone had to do it for the first time. They just put some water in there and see what happens. Yeah, someone had to put some water in there, but instead the guy's like, nah, screw it. Let's put in wine. I... <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'll say it might have been less dangerous to go with wine in that day and time, because I don't know if any water that they could have put in would have been necessarily sanitary. Fair point. So after that, a lot of things took place over the next several years. From that point, created the idea of a dialysate bath and new methods to decrease infection and improve efficiency and change how long the fluid had to sit in you. So let's let's jump ahead to just say, how does peritoneal dialysis actually work? What's the idea behind it? When the dialysis solution, so a hole is created in your belly that opens up into that cavity and a catheter is inserted into it. And then oh. through the catheter, you infuse a dialysis solution. And this solution is not pure water. It's a mix of salts and water and things designed to essentially pull f waste products out of your body. All right? Yeah, so you have to have it balanced enough to where you don't have um, water shifts, right? So you can pull off water if you want to, Right. But the solution, you know, can't be dilute in uh, the wrong type of products, meaning it it can't be more dilute in the wrong types of salts um, and some proteins where you actually starve the human being. I'm going to go ahead and liken it again to a marinade, because what happens is the dialysis solution is put in your belly and then it sits there for a couple hours or 30 minutes or depending on what kind of peritoneal dialysis you're receiving. And that solution absorbs waste yeah. and extra fluid from your body. And after a few hours, the solution and wastes are then drained out of your belly into an empty bag. And you just throw that bag away in a toilet or tub and then over with a fresh mm -hmm. bag of solution. And when it's fresh, it absorbs wastes very quickly. And as time passes, filtering slows. And all of that is due to osmosis and semi-permeable membrane. It is. So, you know, you have a low concentration of urea in the dialysis solution. You have a high concentration of urea in your bloodstream. Urea flows from your bloodstream back out to your peritoneum where the dialysis fluid is waiting for it until it reaches like an equilibrium. And then you have to remove that dialysis fluid and, and suck it back out. Or, you know, as a for instance, the you know, the urea will just accumulate and you'll probably resorb it. Same thing with the amount of sodium, with the amount of potassium. And if you want to pull off water, um, you know, how concentrated you want the, the water to be also. So um, it's, it's really, really cool because in this case, you have a semi-permeable membrane just ready for you, just waiting right there in your belly. I don't think you're ready for this belly. <laughs> the time the dialysis solution sits in your belly and marinades is called the dwell time. And usually people on peritoneal dialysis have to change the solution at least four times a day. And, and they sleep with the solution in their belly at night. And there's about four or five different ways this can be accomplished. Now you can have 
peritoneal dialysis mm -hmm. that goes all night. You can have bags that change a couple times during the day. And frankly, if you have more questions about this, as I would say, check the show notes, talk to a nephrologist. Yeah. We are giving you, honestly, the bare bones minimum. There's a lot to unpack here. And let me put it this way. Warwick is not the only one with a bowl with a belly full of wine at the moment. <laughs> it's true. Suffice it to say, just as a very simple thing, you know, semi-permeable membrane in your abdomen, your blood is flowing. The omentum, which acts as the semi-permeable membrane and the peritoneum, which acts as a chamber then, you actually have blood flowing right past that fluid that's filling the peritoneum. You get solutes passing back and forth between the dialysis membrane, which is the peritoneal membrane, and you cycle that fluid out, boom. And then if all goes well, you're really done. And nephrologists, you know, the cool thing about this is they're kind of like engineers slash mathematicians in the field of medicine, right? They sit down and actually run a lot of these equations of what this dialysis solution should look like. Special customized peritoneal dialysis fluid and you get it shipped to you and you sleep and your your peritoneum does the job of your kidneys now the solution bag that you get is has to be warmed to body temperature before use. So you don't want to put in cold solution because uh, then that's part of what made our red red wine lady so sick so you can use an electric blanket or let the bag sit in a tub of, of warm water. Most of them come in like a protective outer wrapper, like a little burrito, and you can warm them in a microwave. But do not microwave a bag of solution after it's out of the wrapper. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you can hurt yourself. Yeah. Uh, and there's a few problems yeah, with perineal dialysis. Yeah. It does increase your risk for a hernia. One, because you have an opening right through the middle of your belly for your catheter. And second, the way the fluid in your belly puts a lot of pressure on your muscle. So it's not uncommon to see a lot of these patients. Also, there can be some weight gain over time because the longer the solution remains in your belly, the more dextrose your body will absorb from the solution while it's exchanging toxins. So this modality is very, very ideal for little humans, uh, children. But I think for you, Josh, um, in adult medicine, you see a lot more hemodialysis, don't you? I do, and I'm actually looking at the time, and there is so much to say about hemodialysis that I don't want to turn this into a big old bloated belly full of an episode. So that's it for this week, folks. Join us next week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that down in the show notes, along with a selection of sites that I used while researching this week's episode. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Results still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic out of botulinum toxin A is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.